At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Oh yeah, we have to do the faces and stuff when it, when the recording. Oh yeah, starts. okay. Hold on, suck. I'm gonna. I'll record on the video, but not on the um, down cast until we do the faces. Here we go. All right, welcome on to a special Monday. Fifteen and gonna be a lot more than sixty, I'm guessing. And we actually are gonna have to finish all fifteen today. I'm throwing down the gauntlet right now because we have to do a gamer for the NBA Cup tomorrow. And a reminder that you can join us on NBA League Pass. Huge game in West Group C. Minnesota and Golden State are both 1-0. and We're going to be doing that one on NBA League Pass. And then, of course, we'll have all the action for you on Dunked on Prime wrapping things up. But we haven't talked about our beloved Eastern Conference. Yes, it's not as good as the West, but that's okay. We're going to give it just as much as we do the Western Conference. So we're going to go in order of net rating in the Eastern Conference. And that begins us with... The team we probably would have expected to start with on net rating, and that is the Boston Celtics. They are 8-2 and two on the season. They are first not only in the East, but in the entire NBA in net rating, plus, you know, 16.4. Some light work there. The Celtics are fourth in offense and second in defense. And for those of you who remember... With the demise of 538's public stats, we are using ESPN's BPI for records and playoff odds. BPI is projecting the Celtics to win 59 games, which will be tops in the East, and gives them a 100% chance of making the playoffs. <laughs> well, they do have plenty of depth. It really would take like a couple of major injuries, I think, for them to even drop down towards being a 500 team. And yeah, as you mentioned, fourth on offense, second on defense thus far. And what is their overall statistical resume look like? Anything kind of stick out as a, an outlier in the four factors or, or anything else? Sure. So something I wanted to do in this, and we're not going to have something for every team, but so we, over the years, you and I have referred a lot to a, to a research that Krishna and Arsu did on when a lot of specific stats stabilize on the team level. And like when they get to an R squared of 0.5 with what a team ends up doing. And so there's still some variance within that, but it's the idea is that it gets stabilized. And so one of the things that I wanted to pull was of those stats, which East teams are outliers in the ones that have stabilized by roughly 10 games. Not every team has played 10, some have played more, some play fewer, just depends. And for the Boston Celtics, they're an outlier in in more than a few, in, in a couple, which are notable. So the Celtics have the third fastest offensive time to shot. So Narsu did it in overall pace. Um, I find pace being split into offensive and defensive a lot more instructive. So the Celtics, basically the third fastest offensive pace in the NBA. 
Then they one of the other things that stabilized is the proportion of your shots that are threes. The Celtics take 43.3% as threes. That's the second highest in the NBA. And they have the third highest opponent three-point attempt rate in the NBA. Yeah, and meanwhile, they are really walling off the rim pretty well defensively in terms of just not allowing that many shots there. And by the way, just quickly for those who need a refresher, when you say an R square of 0.5, that basically means that 50% of what your number would be at the end of the season can be explained by these first 10 games. So essentially, if you take one part, just random reversion to the mean, and one part, the results that we've already had, that will get you what your end of season number would be typically so there's a, enough signal at this point that these numbers are worth talking about and have some predictive power the more you get into stuff related to shooting percentages particularly on jump shots that becomes less reliable you get into the 2030 game mark uh, for a lot of those numbers to get to that 0.5 r squared a couple other interesting things for the celtics fourth in defensive rebounding despite not really having anyone that you would consider to be a dominant defensive rebounder al horford usually hasn't been that chris hasperzingas is only rebounding 16 percent of opponent misses although he's played very well elsewhere as we'll get to but just generally when you're not allowing as many shots at the rim and in the paint it's a lot easier to get defensive rebounds mm-hmm. shots closer to the basket are much easier to offensive rebound because the defense is out of position another thing that i i looked into you found that number on them having the third fastest offensive time to shot is the celtics are last in the east there are a few west teams below them in passes per game only 258 usually you'll go between about 250 on the low end and a bit over 300 on the high end but when you're getting the shot up quickly of course you're not going to have as many passes per possession so they have not been like a huge ball movement team by any means but they are getting up and down on the fast break they have a lot of guys who can grab and go porzingis can be a good trail man in transition as well and i think porzingis has to me been their second best player pretty clearly so Mm -hmm. far this season would you agree with that i would and i mean porzingis has been ridiculously efficient on the offensive end last year was the high water mark for him in terms of kind of the efficiency usage frontier 63 percent true shooting on 27 usage now unsurprisingly when you join the celtics that usage rate goes down but 69 percent true shooting so far and really where that usage has dropped off is he's taking fewer twos but christoph porzingis has been extremely effective on the twos he's taken. Yeah, so I think a lot of people felt like, well, Kristaps Porzingis, the reason he was better last year with Washington was his post-ups actually became efficient. And he, he found a way to make more of those kind of tough turnarounds using his size advantage. And that would be a big thing that he could bring to Boston, that when the opposing team switches, you can throw it to him, he can get a good shot. The post-up has not been used very much so far by Porzingis uh, and his usage rate is down quite a bit. But when they do throw it to in the post, he's been extremely effective drawing fouls on 38% of his post-ups. His free throw rate is basically 50% right now. And he's taking, as a percentage of his shots, a higher percentage of free throws, but in raw terms, fewer because he has a lower usage rate. The biggest thing for Porzingis, though, is that he really has been cutting out those long twos. Instead, he is taking 33% of his shots at the rim. Last year, it was 17%. Now, the Wizards' home score is very stingy about awarding rim attempts. So it wasn't to say it's doubled. It would be probably a little bit rich. 
but this is by far, and he's never been over 25% of his shots at the rim well, and, in, in his and career. Yeah. Nate, last year, Kristaps Porzingis in his career, 11% of his shots have been 16 feet to the three-point line. This is as basketball reference does it. And last year, that was 9%. This year, it's 2%. Yeah, so really, it's been threes for him where he's shooting 40%. That's been excellent. He's firing away, taking deep ones, and he's getting to the basket 33% of his attempts, and he's dunking on 18% of his field goal attempts. So it really has been exactly what you would hope for a team that has these other mouths to feed on the pruner. Porzingis' usage rate has gone down. They've been very effective, of course, with that. And he really wanted to come to Boston. It seems like there's a possibility he may have turned down more money from Utah. He ended up getting the extension where he actually took a pay cut going forward after the season, after opting in. And he's really lived up to trying to play winning basketball to be efficient, operating more as a play finisher than he has and getting to the basket for a lot using the great spacing that they have for finishes working more as a role man at the basket than he ever has before and then bombing away from three and spacing the floor for others so the usage rate is down in the low 20s but career high in efficiency and maybe you could see that that could reduce a little bit if he doesn't shoot it quite so well from three but he shot it well from three last year too you know this is not totally unprecedented and you wondered like okay you know he did it in this environment where he was kind of the man in Washington and what was going to happen when he got into more of a winning environment and we'll have to see it in the playoffs of course but so far he's been everything that they could possibly have hoped one other element of the Celtics that I think Porzingis has a major effect on is that they are first right now in the NBA in opponent free throw attempt rate and that is really really impressive yeah and for him now of course there could always be injuries as well but for him to be able to stay on the floor from a foul perspective and a health perspective has been massive and uh, that move uh, we talked about what the ills that have befallen some of the guys that they've traded but uh he's been fantastic coming in and from a rim protection standpoint it'll be interesting to see seth wrote about this today on dunked on prime that with the nba switching providers we may see that some of the baseline numbers for things like that defensive impact in the rim, the opponent field goal shooting at the rim, when you are within five feet of the offensive player and that player shoots within five feet, what is the expected field goal percentage there? What, what is the actual field goal percentage? That's could maybe change. Right now, Porzingis is contesting about seven per game, which is a very solid number for a center. He's playing almost exclusively at center. And opponents are shooting 57%. That's not the absolute highest level. We'll talk about a few other guys who have been amazing in that regard. But when you consider the number that he's contesting and how few they generally allow at the rim to begin with, he's doing a good job of being there and certainly reducing the opponent's shooting percentage at the rim, even if he hasn't been absolutely elite in terms of his shot blocking and contesting quite yet. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back and the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, 
Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Let's turn now to the Philadelphia 76ers, second in the Eastern Conference in net rating. They have lost a mere one game, 8-1, 12.4 net rating. That's second, not only in the East, but in the whole NBA. Third on offense and seventh on defense. They project for BPI for 55 wins and also 100% chance of making the playoffs i'm not going to go quite that far because if joel Embiid went down i think that could change a lot of things for them but uh you watched pacers sixers on sunday we will get another edition of that matchup tuesday for the nba cup what'd you have on that pacers sixers matchup i was excited to watch this game even before you know kind of knowing what ended up transpiring and yeah philly came in on a seven game win streak because they lost that their opener against the Bucks by one and it ended up being a somewhat a different game than I expected but a true showcase for Tyrese Maxey and Maxey ended up having 50 points and was plus 17 but it was a ridiculously efficient 50 points 20 of 32 from the field so he scored that 50 on 33 shooting possessions only turned the ball over twice and I thought there were a couple of really definitive stretches for Maxi in this contest. And incidentally, I don't think there's any like signal here necessarily. Both of them came when Joel Embiid was not on the floor. And so maybe it's because my expectations of those lineups can be a little bit lower. But the first one occurred in the beginning of the second quarter. Maxi was being guarded by Andrew Nemhard, who does not start for the for the Pacers. But depending on who, what kind of player you're talking, you could argue that Nemhard is the best perimeter defender on the Pacers. And Bruce Brown is better on certain guys and then Nemhard on certain guys. And I'm like, okay, you know, Maxi had a really hot start. How's he going to do here? 13 points in the first three minutes and 30 seconds of the second quarter (laughs) and was, you know, drilling some threes, had some nice pick and roll play with Paul Reed. And that was massive. And then at the end of the third, the uh, Batum hit some threes and like it basically the, the, uh, and and it had been going back and forth. And then, so I'm like, okay, you know, Maxie's going to be in now the, the Joel Embiid's probably not gonna be on the floor and we'll see where things go. And while the game, you know, it was, it was some version of nip and tuck for most of the way. The six, the Sixers pulled away before Joel Embiid even checked back in the game. And it was really Maxi running the show. He was the best player on the floor. And, you know, when a player scores 50 and Indiana does not have the most consistent defense, we'll get to their stats in a second. Your instinct might be, oh, well, he beat a bad defense. I don't think that was the story here. I think it was Tyrese Maxey, both as a pick and roll creator, as a transition force, which he's absolutely been, and then being opportunistic in every other phase of the game. He he made this his contest. He He absolutely dominated. Yeah, career high 50 points. And I think the biggest thing that 7 11 from three, just overall, Maxi's every year of his career, the percentage of his threes that are assisted have gone down. That's down to 65% now. And one of my criticisms of Maxi in the past has been, well, you know, he's he's not like a great passer, number one, and he's certainly gotten better there, and he hasn't really turned the ball over. He's turning it over even less and assisting more, which is an incredible 
feat to accomplish. And then the other thing, though, is that he's getting better now as an isolationist. And it's not just kind of those quick attacks from the wing or in transition, just hard drive right hand. Now he's he's actually added and supposedly working with Joel Embiid's trainer, Drew Hanlon. Drew Hanlon will uh, certainly bust out the step backs when he's teaching guys. And that's actually worked pretty well for Tyrese Maxey now. And when he's shooting 43% from three again, and by the way, this is looking pretty damn real considering he's at 43% from three each of the last three seasons now after being 30% his rookie year, really just an incredible shooting improvement for him. So the fact that now he's able to get to that shot off the dribble and it's a real weapon, like that is now rounding out his offensive game in addition to more distribution, more interaction with Joel Embiid. And this guy's looking unstoppable so far. We'll see whether he can keep this up, but particularly for him to be able to generate 32 shot attempts in 39 minutes that's very very impressive for him a couple other key threads from the Sixers in this contest of course plenty to discuss from Indiana's perspective as well Joel Embiid had a very nice game overall this was the Tyrese Maxey show but Embiid got to the free throw line 14 times made 12 of those 14 so he was able to be effective even though he wasn't the best from the field and I thought that Miles Turner did a reasonably good job making life as hard on Joel Embiid as he could but Embiid he was able to get some nice shots in the basket and also Embiid there was a stretch and Jalen Smith has had a really nice year as the backup five for Indiana where Jalen Smith just can't really do anything with Joel Embiid and so he was able to take advantage and that's where he got some of those free throws had had a had a block as well I'm trying to remember if the block was during that stretch but the other part of it was for me this was the like the full encapsulation of not only Nikola Batum but kind of how some of the theory of this Sixers team is is better and like you and I talked about this a little bit when the Harden trade happened of how these guys could potentially fit in and like Batum he and PJ Tucker are not the same defensively they're both good defenders but they do it in different ways but what Batum brings offensively beyond being a more aggressive three-point shooter is the ability to make good decisions quickly and there were various times in this contest where that part of it for Batum made a world of difference. There was one where the Pacers were trapped. They tried to trap Maxi was like close enough where you're going to try to do that. Maxi gets the ball to Batum. And then Batum immediately gets the ball to Joel Embiid, who has like a half step on Miles Turner because of the trap. Turner wasn't quite in position. And Embiid misses the first shot, but then gets the putback. And P.J. Tucker is a wonderful player, but Batum can really fill some of those important roles extremely well for them. And then, you know, we saw a little bit of Daniel House in this game. I thought Covington was, you know, he was a, a solid team defender. The offensive game is still a giant question mark for him. But the concept of you have Maxi and Embiid driving the bus offensively with with Tobias Harris, who had a nice game too, as the kind of tertiary option in the main groups. But then you have Melton and Batum doing the perimeter defensive heavy lifting and then Joel Embiid doing Joel Embiid things. It works, and it's worked extremely well for them so far. Yeah, these guys uh, are looking really good, and there's a thought maybe that with the booty from the Harden deal, they could make a, another move or perhaps with their cap space this offseason. But for them to start this well, have this type of net rating even after nine games, and also, quite frankly, to see Milwaukee struggling, some of these other teams we're going to get to struggling uh, as well. Now, I don't love their matchup uh, against Boston. I know they beat them in, in the one matchup in Philly. It was a pretty close game, but uh, this will be fascinating. Now, 
The question will, of course, remain, hey, can Joel Embiid be the same player that he is in the regular season in the playoffs? If he can be this year, then these guys are a threat. But I still am going to, I kind of need to see that at least once. It's been so long now that we haven't um, seen him play at that level. Two other Let's thi- talk Pacers. You well, ready? Two other yeah. things oh, on the Sixers. Um, one, yeah. they have the second highest free throw attempt rate in the NBA. They're fractions of a percent behind the Milwaukee Bucks, which is impressive. They have Joel Embiid. We'll talk about why the Bucks are where they are. And then again, I'm, you know, I, I just fixated on this a little bit because of how well Maxi played in those non-Embiid minutes. In 217 cleaning the glass possessions, when Maxi has been on the floor and Joel Embiid has been off, the Sixers have a 124 offensive rating and are outscoring opponents by 16 points per 100 possession. Yeah, we'll see whether they can keep that up. I would <laughs> suspect they'll be a little bit hard pressed, but uh, that certainly is uh, fantastic because the Embiid off time has been so difficult for them. Uh, so the Pacers. Want, do you want to give yeah. their stats before we forget? Indeed. Six and four. 11th in the NBA in net rating at plus 2.6. They are number one in offense, 122.4. They are 26th in defense, 119.8. They project for the nine seed, 42 wins per BPI, 57% chance of making the playoffs despite projecting for the nine seed. That's interesting. And they have the second fastest offensive time to shot in the league. And this is a great stat that you pulled that they are number one off of made baskets that they get the ball out and run. That's something that the Kings were were great at last year. Yeah, running off of makes. Now, nobody takes threes against them in part because maybe you just don't have to <laughs> you can just get right to the basket only allowing 26 percent of shots from three-point range that's three percent lower than anybody else and 10 percentage points lower than the league median this is also remarkable that even as much as they run they have the third lowest turnover rate and then this is another really interesting one right i mean you can see tyrese halliburton and his fingerprints all over this but you think this is one of these teams where everything runs through him. That's why they don't really turn it over that much. But it's not really the case. And they are actually, despite, and this is much different than Boston, despite the fact that they shoot so quickly, they are also fifth in passes per game. Wow. So they, if they do get caught in that half court, they are going to run their offense. And, and of course, they're going to be very effective there. They are number two in the NBA in e-field goal percentage and also number two in location e-field goal percentage. They're shooting the crap out of it from everywhere. Maybe that's going to fall off a little bit in terms of their three-point shooting it being around 40%. Like I'm not sure they're quite going to be that good over the course of the whole season, although they do have Buddy Heald and Tyrese Halliburton who are established 40% three-point shooters. So this offense has been awesome. They are more than the sum of their parts. And I think we'll get to how some of these offenses have been far less than the sum of their parts. Although Tyrese Halliburton is a pretty nice part. He absolutely is. Um, before we get into some of the details um, from this game, I wanted to flag uh, Caitlin Cooper for her excellent blog, Basketball She Wrote, did a phenomenal piece on how the Pacers handled Victor Wembanyama. So basically, they were using. I'm just going to summarize it because I think people should read her should read her work and should subscribe if they if they have the means to. Um, but basically about how the the 
Pacers were doing, they were using Obi Toppin, who was the primary guy that Victor Wembanyam was guarding in that Spurs game. And they were making him basically, they were changing the location of the guy he was guarding and coordinating it basically with the attacks. And so they were trying to get Wembanyama out of being that free safety. And what, what struck me about it was some of that Rick Carlisle, of course, a wonderful tactician as a coach, could end up being some template for like, I'm even thinking playoff series down the road, where it's just the idea of, well, how do you stop what Victor Wembanyama is doing? And so to have one of those like kind of template ideas this early in his NBA tenure was pretty exciting. And I'm so thankful that Caitlin broke that down. But let's get back to the the game in question. Talked a lot about Tyrese Maxey's brilliance and Tyrese Halberton had one hell of a game too. 25 points, 17 assists. And the offense just sings when he's on the floor. Some gorgeous hit-ahead passes. Obi Toppin, that's probably one of the best things that Obi Toppin has done for them, is just a player who fits in beautifully with what Indiana wants to do offensively, pushing the pace. And Toppin has been taking threes. Whether he makes them or not depends on, on the game. He was two of three in this contest. But the thing that I focused on the most as I was watching the different iterations of the Pacers in this one, and the Sixers are challenged, they're eight and one for a reason, is what is Indiana's best five? And I feel very confident that Tyrese Halliburton is in that. I feel very confident that Miles Turner's in that. And I'm reasonably confident that Bruce Brown is in that. The other spots are harder, not just because some guys haven't stepped up. Like, I'm not the biggest fan of what Ben Matherin brings to some of those lineups. And Toppin, he's good in elements, and then he's weaker in other elements. And one of the contenders for that, in my mind, is one that we really haven't gotten to see very much so far. And that is the three men in question, Halliburton, Turner, and Brown, along with Buddy Heald, who's coming off the bench, and Aaron Neesmith, because Neesmith has just mm. played under control. And there are times, like the top and Neesmith thing, I think it is an eye of the beholder decision in terms of what you need at a given at a given point. And so the idea behind that theory, and why I want to see him try it out, is n- none of the non-Bruce Brown Pacers, like, I mean, Nemhard can be a very good defender, but like, they're not so dominant that they have to be out there. So you might as well kind of juice the offense and healed has been a prolific three point shooter has been a wonderful three point shooter. And then at the, at the four, some of it is, is opponent dependent, but part of it is that Aaron Neesmith, I mean, he holds his own defensively, 68% true shooting. He's not going to shoot on threes. We, we, we can do that, but 61% on twos. And, and the idea that in certain matchups you want Toppin and the way he juices the pace and transition, but in certain matchups you want kind of a lower usage guy who knows what he's going to do and can, can defend a little bit more versatilely. And so like I, it's a lineup I want to see Carlisle try more. And I think they may end up going to it in crunch time. We've already seen Neesmith in crunch time, but the Neesmith healed combo in crunch time. I don't, I don't recall seeing as much. And I'll be interested to see when the Matherin in the starting lineup experiment ends, Mm. if it does. Uh, Now, he's having an itching season, 52% true shooting, 7.5% offensive rebounds for Ben Matherin. He's channeling his inner Josh Okogie, but... Ben Matherin has a negative net rating and he starts and plays a bunch of minutes with Tyrese Halliburton and Tyrese Halliburton is plus nine net rating on floor. Tyrese Halliburton, 126.8 offensive rating. That is basically (laughs) the best in the league for any 
high minute player. And I mean, there's some amazing guys in that with Luca, Maxi, Jason Tatum, Devin Booker, who's only played a couple of games. You neglected to mention Alec Burke somehow being there again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. So I'm interested to see and what you're saying about the closing lineup and maybe that being their best five that they could get to. Like they definitely, I mean, Caitlin and I talked about this extensively before the season, how this is, and this is part of why I went with the Pacers under that's not looking great so far was, you know, they're going to start Mather and it's still going to maybe be more of a development season. And we thought they're going to play Jairus Walker. They're not playing Jairus Walker at all right now. Part of that is because Neesmith has been good. So yeah, I'm, interested to see how long they stick with that if this team is like actually gonna be in contention for a top six playoff six playoff seed then maybe they're not going to mess around with matherin all year but of course that would be kind of an admission that you know he's not one of their five best players it could be and the pressures that have to be on carlisle who has a voice it appears in the personnel process coming from pritchard and everything else but if they're yeah as you mentioned being in the crucible earlier on does change the way that teams think about this and the way the coaches do and so we'll we'll, we'll get a we'll get a look at that a couple other quick pacers notes obi toppin had a completely ridiculous um reverse dunk where he um he basically he ran past Joel Embiid it wasn't like a dribble drive or anything like that and then just he never really turned he just dunked the ball behind him and I've just never really seen someone do it at that kind of speed where it's just like it's just like a speed run then like oh yeah I can do a dunk because Obi Toppin is that kind of athletic talent it didn't involve a lot of his vaunted hip flexibility (laughs) something that you and I talked about because he's going in a straight line but it it worked out very well for him and something else that I really liked from the Pacers that I, I hadn't fully appreciated before their game on Sunday, some nice high-low passing from Turner to Toppin. Um, Miles Turner, I, I've never, you know, like he, he can make some good passes, but having somebody like Toppin who can kind of cover ground quickly and just looking for the pass, you know, not doing it every every second of every game, but being able to hit it when it's there is a really nice little perk for this team. And I mean, that, that, that they can do things like that and just not turn the ball over at all is an absolute godsend. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Incredibly, the ne- or not incredibly, but surprisingly, the next team in the Eastern Conference to discuss is the Atlanta Hawks. The Hawks are seventh in net rating, plus five point one, with a five and four record. They are sixth in offense and seventeenth in defense. BPI projects them to finish as the five seed in the East, forty six and thirty six, and gives them an eighty four percent chance of making the playoffs. I've been talking about these outliers and the stats that have that have gotten a little bit more stable. The Hawks have the fastest time to shot in the NBA. Um, that's by unpredictable. They're almost a second faster than anyone else after a defensive rebound, which is extremely impressive when you think there shouldn't be that much variance with that. And then also impressively for the Hawks, 
They have the third highest free throw attempt rate in the NBA right now. Yeah, now that being a full second faster than anyone else, that makes me think perhaps that they're in arena stats is taking a long time to log the defensive rebound is having occurred. <laughs> Seth wrote about that it's, again. It's, a, it's reasonable. But I, I do think it's reasonable to conclude that they're at least playing pretty quickly, which has not necessarily been a huge hallmark. And certainly under Nate McMillan, who was never a big transition guy, it wasn't. So, and that's what I always thought Trey Young would be huge at. And he wasn't necessarily a huge juicer of transition the way he was at Oklahoma. And, you know, we thought maybe he'd be kind of a Steph Curry sort of player. Instead, he was really more like pick and roll maestro. And while Trey has not shot the ball, particularly very early in the season, remember when he was going to never get to the line anymore because they changed the rules? Yeah, that that expectation has not become reality. 10 free throw attempts per 36 minutes for Trey Young when no other Hawk is above 4.6 per 36. Remember that scales by minutes played. Um, He is fourth individually in attempt rate behind Giannis, Joel Embiid, and Damian Lillard, which is super duper impressive. And one other stat I wanted to throw out, you brought up how the the Hawks didn't play as fast as we as may have been conducive to Trey Young's game. Now, obviously, acknowledging all the small sample size issues here, the last five years, the Hawks have hovered around 79-80% of their plays being in transition. And, you know, that was a lower proportion, so meaning they play a little faster than the median in most of those years. That 79% or so, 73.4% this year. Yeah, that is a remarkable number. And I guess another thing you can point to as well is these guys, particularly under McMillan and with Trey, didn't turn the ball over that much. Now they actually are turning it over more, perhaps because they're in transition, but they're also killing people on the offensive glass, 30% offensive rebound rate as well. And that's been a, a big part of what they're doing. They're also forcing more turnovers than they have in the past. So I'm interested to see where it goes from here with these guys. You know, the foul drawing and the offensive rebounding, you would think that that would hold up. Let's see if they can get better on the turnover percentage offensively. And can Trey start to hit a few more shots uh, from the field than he has been? If he does that, then these guys really could continue to devastate offensively or maybe you know i think it's you know trey's only shooting 29 percent from three for example now Dejounte murray is shooting 42 percent from three and he's actually taking only one fewer three-point attempt per game than trey young interestingly enough that's impressive now the biggest reason for optimism so far for these guys is the play of jalen johnson fourth in the team in minutes even that you would be surprised by he clearly has surpassed both deandre hunter and Sadiq Bay in the pecking order in terms of uh, their prospects and not only prospects but just who's probably better on the wing right now 65 percent true shooting still relatively low usage 18 but he's been a- extremely efficient helps when you shoot 90 percent at the rim that's pretty good <laughs> wow and and he's also now that number will of course come down you know the highest number you see Has over to. the course of a of a season is usually a, maybe a little bit over 80 percent like some of the best Giannis seasons were there uh for like you know half the year or something like that now another thing that's interesting is he's also taking more shots in that three to ten foot range he's making 50 percent of those not taking any mid-rangers at all really and he's shooting 35 percent from three now that's only three a game he's got hot in in a couple of games recently was under 30 percent up until the last couple of games so i'm not sure like he's taking enough but not 
that's definitely not what he's trying to do. Uh, shooting 35% on 2.9 attempts per game. The thing that's most exciting about him to me, though, is his ball skills. And he's one of the better passers outside of Trey and DeJounte on the team. He actually will set guys up a, a little bit. They run some stuff through him at the elbows. And you combine his ball handling with his athleticism. And he's starting to show some signs of becoming a mismatch problem for teams. A lot of teams don't necessarily like to run 1-4 two four pick and rolls you think oh you know they're just going to switch that how many fours can really post up and it's not necessarily posting up for Jalen Johnson but he's got enough ball skills like there's one play against the Knicks where they did switch it they throw it to him 23 feet from the basket against Emmanuel quickly and he just goes right through Emmanuel quickly like he's not even there he's just too big too strong too athletic and his handle is good enough that he's not going to just like get the ball taken and he can make at least a rudimentary pass if the defense rotates over but he's a problem if he like he had another play where he went right past Markel Fultz as well Markel Fultz you would think like against a most power forwards is going to be okay but Jalen Johnson just kind of turning and facing ripping through hard drive can spin back using his size and athleticism he's getting right to the basket and causing problems for the opposition he can also grab and go as well I think he's been a big part of their transition renaissance that they've had and then he also has so, these passing skills to work out at DHO right if, if a shooter comes off of that you have to switch it he can do the fake and then he's got the smaller guy on him he can make the right decision to a guy going back door if needed or he can do that fake keeper and he's on top of the rim in one dribble for a dunk so this is adding really of course this is a nascent development right now but adding another element that someone even like john collins didn't necessarily have for this group who can attack from the perimeter that you have to deal with defensively and his ability to get on top of the basket with the combination of his ball handling size and athleticism that's something that i hope they continue to explore even further maybe even with him as the ball handler and trey or jante as the screener we can move on to the new york knicks who despite being 500 they're five and five have the eighth best net rating in the nba plus 4.7 per 100 possessions they are 11th on offense and fifth a robust fifth on defense bpi projects them to finish with the seventh best record in the east 44 and 38 and have a 74 percent chance of making the playoffs and nate the stats you pulled on their on what they're doing around the basket this year like when i i, I try not to look as much in a section that i'm not doing on the sheet i saw it in my jaw just at the floor i will there's so much to talk about with this team and I mean, it's remarkable they have the eighth best net rating in the nba it's remarkable that they're five and five and two and of their yet, losses like, are to the celtics right yeah, and they lost that at Milwaukee as well. Not that Milwaukee's playing particularly well, but they're just, I just don't know what the hell to make of this team because they have a bunch of things that are going really well and a bunch of things that are going like incredibly poorly. And the first of those is the fact, and again, they've played the Celtics twice and they've shot worse on twos than on threes in both of those games. They're shooting 54.6% at the rim. That is five percentage points below the next worst team. And is it maybe the case that their home games are characterizing a few more shots as at the rim? Uh, maybe that's a little bit, but this is just an incredible outlier. Here's how much of an outlier that is, right? Five percentage points worse than the next lowest team, even now, right? It's like, oh, you get some big outliers three weeks into the season. No, th 
this is crazy. I couldn't remember over even this amount of time a team shooting this poorly at the rim. Every once in a while, you would see, like, I think in the absolute heyday of Rudy Gobert, Jazz opponents, when he was on the floor, would shoot about this percentage at the rim. The last team, oh, here, let, let me give you this. The worst team shooting at the rim over the full season last year was OKC. They shot 62.6%. That is eight percentage points better than the Knicks are shooting at the rim right now. 2022, Portland was 60%. 2021, OKC, a tanking team, was 60%. 2020, Charlotte, another awful team, was 59.4%. You have to go back over 10 years to get a team that shot under 55% at the rim over a full season. That was the 2011-12 lockout season. The New Jersey Nets, not the Brooklyn Nets, Danny. The New (laughs) Jersey Nets shot 54.8%. But wait, no, that's still not as low as 54.6%. The last team to shoot worse than the Knicks are shooting at the rim right now over a full season was the 2007-08 Chicago Bulls. The Scott Skiles got fired on Christmas. Chicago Bulls shot 53.7% at the rim. Slightly different era of basketball back then. Back then, the best teams in the league shot around 63% at the rim. The Suns were like the big outlier. They were the one team that was kind of playing modern offense back then. That season, they shot 66% at the rim. The best team shot 63% other than the Suns. Note that I said the worst team last year shot 63%. That's one of the biggest things that probably just doesn't get talked about enough over the last 15 years is not only is there such different shot selection there used to be more teams taking threes taking so many more threes but the spacing is so much better and also probably teams aren't playing as big a guys at power forward although i think we're seeing maybe a reversal of that trend a little bit but even back then there weren't like amazing room protectors at the power forward position necessarily but this is like one of the biggest evolutions that we've had is that the floor is more spread and it's easier to finish the rim now than it ever used to be and also i think that teams don't help as much at the rim they that again maybe is changing some in the last few years but the the idea of sticking to shooters is more important than it's been because those shooters are now standing at the three-point line instead of 17 feet from the basket in a lot of cases so let's, is, let's take a yeah go, go ahead it's, Danny. I, it's I, completely I, unreal i mean because you're as you said like the context of where the league is versus where the knicks are and and yes this is a 10 game sample it is not an 82 game sample but it is still beyond bizarre so can we go through just some of the shooting percentages at the rim by knicks sure. players like how, how is this all adding up to to this historically awful I mean, I'm, basket. I'm assuming it's that Mitchell Robinson is doing what Mark Williams did in that other game and just grabbing a million of his own misses. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk about that in the Charlotte section, I'm sure. But yes, I mean, that's that's probably part of it, right? Mitchell Robinson is shooting very poorly at the rim. A lot of that are just uh, his own putbacks and tapbacks uh, that aren't going in. That's that's reasonable. Uh, but I mean, some of these... Uh, all right, so he's got an excuse a little bit. I mean, Mitchell Robinson is, we'll just talk about it. He's another one of these guys where just the numbers that he's putting up are just completely crazy. Any other uh, guys shooting a little poorly at the rim for for the New York Knicks? (laughs) Oh, boy. 
Um, I, I kind of want to because you you pulled some of it. I kind of want to just get to their get to the basketball reference team page for them and look at this myself because no, no, I, I want this, you to please. I would like to you to have a live reaction for some of these numbers. Okay, I'm gonna sort it by proportion of their shots that are in that area. Okay, good job, Isaiah Hartenstein. You're at seventy percent. Good job, Julius Randall, thirty five percent. Thirty five percent. Thirty five percent. Six nine power bruising power forward shooting. 35% at the rim. DiVincenzo, 43%. That's bad enough in and of itself. Um, he's actually taking a higher proportion of his shots at the rim than Randall is, which is incredible. Jalen Brunson, 50%. Quickly, 54. Jalen Brunson, do you remember when we did a whole segment on him, his breakout season with the Mavs, on how he was shooting like this incredible percentage in the 70s for like a six-foot guard at the rim? No longer, 50%. <laughs> unbelievable i mean those are their two best players right i mean jalen brunson is not getting to the rim that much rj barrett actually has been respectable 63 percent robinson we talked about uh, shooting 54 percent. i mean that's yeah there's a bunch of tap backs but that's that's still a pretty awful number and then his free throw shooting has been miserable emmanuel quickly all right i guess you got a little bit of an excuse shooting 54 percent from three so yeah i i mean that's just incredible uh, and even more incredible is that the Knicks are still 11th on offense <laughs> somehow, uh, despite these uh, this like record terrible shooting. That is genuinely impressive. And like you're thinking of, well, how is that even possible? The Knicks aren't turning the ball over much. They're grabbing a metric ton of offensive rebounds. And then, I mean, you brought up that they made more threes than twos in some of the other games. Like, they're still 29th in effective field goal percentage, but they're not awful shoot converting from everywhere else on the floor. So here's some other just crazy stats for the Knicks. Mitchell Robinson, the offensive rebounding. Yeah, he hasn't exactly been ridiculous putting him back himself, but he has a 21% offensive rebound rate. He, Fred Katz had this stat that he's averaging over six offensive rebounds a game. No player has done that since New Jersey Nets. Jason Williams in 1997-98. Julius Randle has one dunk this season in nine games. What? <laughs> that's that's not too amazing julius randall has 44 percent true shooting and 28 percent usage that again that has got to just be a, a and who's the last player to have 28 percent usage and 44 percent true shooting over a nine game span that seems just incredibly uh, like I, I don't remember seeing that in a long time you know jalen brunson was really efficient last year eh, he wasn't really efficient but he's solid efficiency he hasn't had the touch from floater range he's not having a good season not playing close to an all-star level at all josh hart 44 percent true shooting on 12 percent usage <laughs> he is at least getting a lot of defensive rebounds not as many offensive rebounds but i think there was a feeling that he if you're gonna think yeah maybe we'll, we'll uh reduce julius randall's minutes uh, and play josh hart like no he he's really really struggled on the other hand rj barrett is shooting 50 percent from three wow 62 percent true shooting manual quickly uh, has been really good i mean statistically he's been better than jalen brunson so far and then of course they're fifth in defense uh, as well a, a big part of that being mitchell robinson and his uh, incredible rim protection and that's a very impressive 
impressive feat considering that they are really undersized and don't have any other guys that I would consider a great defender outside of Robinson who deserves a ton of credit for having made himself into that I mean Hartenstein is a solid center as well so they always are going to have good centers out on the floor defensively but there's nobody else that you look at as like some amazing stopper so for them to be fifth defensively is pretty good and plus the Knicks are um they're middle of the road in terms of opponent three-point shooting so this isn't you know the ridiculousness of we tell we talked about new orleans shooting like a little bit ago and they're 50 and 60 this isn't that though there are obviously things that could regress to the mean so yeah i just don't know what to make of these guys i mean randall has to be better doesn't he i you he's been a thousand times worse than he was in that interregnum between his two all nba seasons in 22 for some reason just the the uh the even year curse uh, is just uh, ripping this guy like josh josh hart has got to play a little bit better like josh hart is actually taking more threes at least this season but he's i mean the biggest thing that you look at to describe all of their ills is just the complete lack of spacing that they have offensively and they're always going to play mitchell robinson you're always going to play a big center all right like julius randall again it's just such a bellwether for these guys if he's going to shoot poorly like remember last year he really improved his three-point attempt rate and yeah he didn't make that many of them he wasn't at 41 percent like he was back in 21 but he was really gunning them and he gave them that spacing now he's shooting 26 six percent from three in addition to that 35 percent at the room he's at 38 percent from two so i mean obviously if julius randall isn't gonna be at anywhere close to an all-star level like these guys are are gonna disappoint this year and i think did julius randall and jalen brunson just like completely forget how to finish no i don't think so it's just that they have no shooting on this team and so these guys are bashing their heads into the paint like they are the 2008 chicago bulls who also weren't exactly overflowing with shooting and also had a a great offensive rebounder who couldn't finish anything around the basket at ben wallace yeah it's uh I mean, these guys are playing basketball from 15 years ago right now. So it's definitely interesting. I just don't know what to make of it quite yet. And whether, like, is RJ Barrett going to start shooting a lot worse from three? Yes, probably. Are Brunson and Randall going to play better? They got to play at least a little bit better, but quickly could fall off as well. I mean, I guess the rebounding is always going to be there to at least give them somewhat of a baseline. They won't turn it over that much. But I I still, you'd think they're probably not the fifth best defense in basketball overall. But maybe Mitchell Robinson just makes them that the way he's playing i i just need to see more from these guys right now it seems like it's been such a disaster this year and yet they're they got the eighth best net rating in the league that's right where you think they're supposed to be part of the dynamic might also be that they don't to me really have a signature win so far this year so they are five and five but their biggest victories in terms of point differential like they beat the Cavs when the Cavs were far from whole they crushed the Spurs and the Hornets and stuff like that so like they'll get those opportunities you know they have a, a notable game on Wednesday in Atlanta and then um the following week so not this coming week but the following week they play Minnesota Miami Phoenix I think we'll get a clearer sense of of things then like that it may just be that further context answers some of these questions so the next time we do a, a 15 and 60 we can get there at amica insurance we know it's more than just a car it's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive the hatchback that took you cross country and back and the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool for the cars you couldn't live without trust amica auto insurance amica 
Empathy is our best policy. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Uh, we can move to the the next team in the East in terms of net rating. Is the Orlando Magic? You want to give their stats? Five and four. They are over five hundred. Dan had a, a stat on that last week. Two point seven net rating is tenth in the NBA. Twenty third on offense. They are third on defense. We talked about them a little bit yesterday and how they've kept it afloat without Wendell Carter, who's really their only guy that you look at as like a solid defensive big in terms of. Uh, his tools and recognition and all that uh, bpi still not in love with these guys projecting them for 36 wins which would be the 11th seed and giving them only a 13 percent chance at the playoffs i i would certainly put it a, a lot higher at this point since wendell went down what does it look like the magic are two and two but their wins are notable they blew out the lakers in orlando in a game that both anthony davis and lebron james played in and then they they beat the bucks in a game i wanted to discuss in more depth damon lillard didn't play and that's an important piece of context here but two and two um the defenses generally look pretty solid and i mean it's not like they had a clear-cut solution there they've largely brought goka patatze into the starting lineup and then he and mo wagner are splitting the minutes pretty close to evenly depending on the game nate the stat that struck me cold when i was the magic and this will be a lot of praise on the magic in this section because they had a nice win in the bucks in the game i watch orlando does not have a full-time starter with a true shooting percentage over 55 this year and remember 55 isn't league average anymore it's more like 58 percent but markel fultz 49, Suggs, 54, Franz Wagner, 51, Paolo Bancaro, 55, and then Wendell Carter Jr., 46%, including Wendell Carter only making 41% of his twos so far this year. There's a lot of regression to the mean that can happen there, and they do have guys in the rotation that are over that threshold, including Cole Anthony and Anthony Black. Black only has a usage rate of 10%, but he has a 76% true shooting, which is pretty impressive. And for that game that the Magic played against Milwaukee, and yes, it is an important piece of context that Damian Lillard didn't play in this game, and Lillard has been so important for the Bucs this year when they're, they've done well offensively, and we've talked about their defense, and Seth has done great work on it and everybody else. Um, for me, one of the big takeaways from this game, and when you think about the impact of Brooke Lopez generally on the Bucks, though things have been slightly different this year, was how Orlando did a really nice job getting to the free throw line. And it actually reminded me of some of the other teams we've seen in the past where like they, I mean, there've been times there've been Chris Paul teams and D'Angelo Russell teams have done this where they get those early fouls, many of which are driving, you know, become shooting fouls, but then that allows them to eventually get free throws on non-shooting fouls. And so there were a couple plays where the Bucks reached and, you know, they got, then the Magic got free throws. But part of the disparity of this contest, which the Magic won 112-97, yes, Orlando was plus 10 in free throw attempts, but in part because of Giannis's five for 12, they were plus 18 in points at the free throw line because Orlando was 30 or 35. Yeah, and this is another one of these offenses that is just going to kind of bash your head into the paint as much as possible. They don't, they would love to have the Knicks shooting at guard <laughs> at this point with the likes of Fultz. Suggs, Suggs is actually having one of the more efficient stretches of his career. So this is looking like, is it going to be? 
I mean, I think Paolo and Franz can be a little bit better and Mo Wagner at least is efficient. Like maybe they get a little bit better offensively. Uh, although if they're going to play him more though, Batadze is starting. I don't know if he's going to be much of an upgrade on Wendell Carter offensively. Another one of these teams that I'm just very interested to see what it looks like, particularly with Carter out for this period. Like they've survived so far in impressive fashion, but I mean, they're going to fall below 500 unless they can keep up this, you know, top seven, six level of defense, you would think, because I just, it's tough for me to see how the offense gets much better than it's been so far. In fact, given that stat that you gave about the true shooting percentage, how are they even 23rd in in offense right now? The Magic are 23rd. Um, they're getting to the foul line 10. They're fifth in free throw attempt rate, and they're sixth in offensive rebound rate. That's making yeah. a big deal. I, I believe they've also been running pretty well. I don't have the stats pulled on that, but I mean, they did a nice job in the Bucks game there. And, and that ties in with some of the other dynamics with Orlando that, that have struck me not only in this game, but overall. It's like, I... There's the double-edged sword of Jalen Suggs offensively, which is that he's playing extremely aggressively, and Orlando needs guys to play aggressively in order for this to function. But at times, he's doing that just taking shots that aren't in his bag yet. Like, he was firing some pull-up threes. There was one play where he drove on Giannis and just tried to take shots. It's like, no, man, that's, you're just not there yet. You're not that guy. Hopefully, he will be at some point. And um, I, I was like, oh, man, it seems like his usage rate is probably super high. It's lower for Suggs than last year, but a huge difference is that he's starting now. So, I mean, Jalen Suggs moving from being primarily backup to being primarily a starter, your usage rate should drop because you're playing a higher proportion of minutes with Wagner, Bancaro, and everybody else who's higher than you in the pecking order. And something else that really stuck out to me from this Magic victory was that, particularly when Damian Lillard is out, this iteration of the Bucks is extremely weak on passing. And so, you know, it's they're playing Payne, who only played 26 minutes in the game. Payne, Beasley, Antetokounmpo, Middleton, and Lopez. And so there aren't many, like, intuitive, like, readers and guys that could kind of make, create those advantages. So Orlando, just being big three through five in particular, that took away a lot of a lot of passing angles. And so you have guys that aren't really going to find the extra stuff. And so that not only generated some awkwardness, but it generated some transition opportunities for Orlando the Bucks turned it over 19 times. Nine of those were live ball steals. And I cracked up really hard because I was writing a note. I'm, you know, I'm watching the game. I'm writing a note about how bad the Bucks passing is. And while I'm writing that note, Brooke Lopez throws a backdoor that isn't there for another turnover. I'm like, okay, I'll put in a separate note on that. They didn't turn it over while I was writing that note as well. Um, Nate, do you want to do the Bucks stats before I um, before I get into their parts of this? Yeah, surprising indeed that we've gotten so far into the Eastern Conference that we have not gotten to the Bucks yet. That is because they have a negative 3.6 net rating despite being 6-4, and four, the 20th best net rating in the NBA. They've had some weird blowout losses, including at home to the Hawks, just totally non-competitive games. 13th on offense, 25th on defense. BPI still likes them. It seems like BPI really factors in the preseason expectations a lot. Likes them for 48 wins and the third seed. Still giving them 94% chance of making the playoffs. 
And just a few notes on the Bucks here before we get back to the game. As you might expect with Giannis and Lillard, particularly because Lillard has been getting the foul line like crazy, they have the highest free throw attempt rate in the NBA. And that was something that they really needed to improve on because they didn't have anyone who got to the line outside of Giannis. That's something that Frank Madden and I talked about in our completely useless Bucks <laughs> preview before the Lillard trade. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully you guys listened to that and enjoyed it before you knew it would be obsolete. But now Lillard, and he, I think, has by far the highest free throw rate of his career right now. It's like 63% or something. So that's pretty crazy. Yeah, ten, 10.7 attempts per 36 minutes. They have the third lowest assist percentage in the NBA. That That is really, you mentioned the, the poor passing. I mean, when they do have Chris Middleton, Lillard, and Giannis all out there, like that should be a three above average passers for their position. I don't know, maybe Lillard's not an above average passer for a point guard, but he's got so much gravity that he can set guys up quite a bit. And then their transition defense continues to be absolutely terrible. That's been a big part of their fouling a ton more as well. I mean, in a lot of ways, this almost feels like Mike Budenholzer was never there, which is, I mean, they're starting to do a little bit more in terms of rim protection now that Brooke Lopez isn't playing as much out on the floor. Well, yeah, remember the idea of like a part of why I picked the Bucks over was I'm like, oh, yeah, they could just they could take the lessons that they learned under Mike Budenholzer. This is before they dramatically changed the personnel over in the lower trade. And then they can just maybe they can modernize the offense. Well, it appears that the math problem was not as consistently easy to solve as we thought it was, at least in the beginning of the season. Um, one what, other. What do you have from that game? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, on the Bucks standpoint. Well, one other extremely important note for the Bucks: um, Jay Crowder, who played 17 minutes, came off the bench in this contest. Um, he's going to have to undergo surgery to repair a uh, left Oof. adductor and abdominal tear. He's going to be out about eight weeks. So that means the rest of this calendar year back probably mid-January. Yeah. And, and Crowder had quietly been awesome. He's shooting 52% from downtown for these guys at over nine games and had played the second most minutes on the team despite coming off the bench. Exactly. And so I, I think they will really miss him. He played 17 minutes in the in the Magic game. Actually, the fir- one of the first things I wanted to mention, I, I just forgot this when I was talking about the Magic, and it involves a former book, so it's appropriate to bring up in their section as well. Joe Ingles has really done, like it, it, especially in this game, but he's done what the what so, a lot of what the Magic really wanted from him. So like giving them passing, a credible shooter, even if he's not making him in every game. And they don't need him to be a star defensively. They don't need any of that kind of stuff. And I was thinking in this one about how much the Bucks could use a passer like Joe Ingles, a facilitator there. And yes, he has his flaws, but especially as a regular season player that could definitely work out um for them and something that this is a small note but it's something that has bothered me for a while but is that bobby portis it, it doesn't the, the phrasing i had in my notes is like he doesn't defend like a tough guy like he sometimes because he's very vocal and because he works hard on the glass he gets that kind of reputation there's a play where franz wagner who is an extremely aggressive driver drove right through portis and then portis commits a soft foul you know one of those like why'd you even do it in the first place type of plays Wagner gets the end one and then the next trip down Wagner just half court drives past him not even in transition or anything like that and that makes life harder on the Bucks where they don't really have that third guy and of course they they could be potentially relying maybe more on on somebody like Robin Lopez but they don't that's just not the way that they've really had this theory over the last couple of years even when Budenholzer was the coach as it was it's it's Giannis it's Brooke it's Portis um, in some combination when they're there. And 
the but the biggest takeaway for me from this game with Milwaukee, and it's not the first time we've discussed it, was Giannis's free throws. They're the not only you know they didn't go in in this game. Giannis was five of twelve, but they looked horrendous. They looked Ugh. off balance. They were they weren't they like they weren't even like missing consistently. It just everything was rough for the season. Giannis is shooting sixty five percent from the line, and that was something that he really improved on. Like that was key to his his MVP years you know he started getting to the line more and was making them at a reasonable rate and then last year 64.5 percent this year 64.9 percent yeah i i still as bad as the defense has been I still think that that could be at least a little bit better, although you are asking a lot of, of Giannis to be the same guy that he's been. The offense is really the bigger concern for me at this point because they just, I number one, Chris Middleton's only played like 112 minutes in seven games this season. He's 10th on the team in minutes played, uh, despite his sensibly being healthy. That's not too good. But the lack of passing, Damian Lillard averaged 7.3 assists and hasn't been under eight since 2019 and he's at 4.7 Giannis's assists uh, are down this is despite them having like plenty of shooting Malik Beasley a guy who's gotten up about 11 three-point attempts for 36 minutes he's at almost half of that right now and so they're just the inability to generate good shots is my biggest concern for these guys i just don't understand why it's been so bad so far i mean damian lillard averaged 32 points a game last year he's averaging 24 this year he did miss a couple of games with that calf maybe it was starting to bother him but it just this was supposed to be man this is gonna be the easiest time that Giannis has ever had the easiest time that lillard has ever had and it just hasn't been the case like they are just not generating great shots at the moment so that's that's gonna have to improve this is something to stick a pin and we don't have time to discuss it right now what do you think the odds are that adrian griffin gets fired this year in season yeah i mean if they keep playing like this like it has to happen right like if they don't start playing better like that they have to fire him. now it, it sure would be nice if you had terry stotts uh, on the bench i mean i guess this could be i mean Joe you, you, you might be able to get it back is is mike budnoser available it's i mean it is a big, a big question I, now i want to give griffin some time to to do everything and they've had some you know the availability you brought up middleton and lord's missed some time too but the ways that the bucks have been below expectations are so jarring that's really jarring yeah like they're they are lucky very lucky to be six and four right they are and so we will continue to monitor them of course oh oh one other just thing that infuriated me about this game Jonathan Isaac, I thought, did a nice job overall. He bit on a Giannis pump fake from one step inside the three-point line when Giannis had picked up his dribble. There is no excuse for that. Like, Jonathan Isaac, beyond him being a wonderful defensive player who had some really nice plays in this one, he had two steals and a block and 17 minutes of action. Just like, just don't do that. Of course, the consequences of doing that when Giannis is making his free throws in adventure are less severe, but you still don't want to do it. Don't do it. Oh, who's next? Another, yeah. Oh, sorry. Actually, we got more. Weird yeah. thing. And this, this actually, there were, there were parallels to this with the Warriors. And I, I, I would, I haven't heard anything from coaches on this because I was at, I was at Warriors. Uh, I think that was Warriors Cavs when this game was going on or like what before it, both in this game and that Warriors game, the coaches pu- put in backups before the game was totally over and so in this one thanasis came in but my i had this one idea which is basically as a as a goal for adrian griffin and who and or whoever coaches the bucks in further thanasis and yana should never be in at the same time because if thanasis is in the game is over and yana should not be on the floor so <laughs> well i 
I did see the quote from Adrian Griffin, like, oh, well, you know, I didn't come back with these guys because, uh, you know, I thought Thanasis was really giving us some good energy. I'm like, that that was the quote that made me think he might end up getting fired this year. <laughs> <laughs> Where it's like, like, we've reached the point of like, oh, I'm going to put the scrubs in to like, ooh, they'll give us some energy. Like, we're, we're going to really jolt with, this team. With four minutes left in the fourth quarter. Like, yeah, that, that that's going to be, that's the path, that's the ticket. Oh, oh boy. Um, And then the, the next team is actually, would, in the East would actually be the Indiana Pacers. We, of course, have already broken them down. So next up, 15th in the NBA in the in net rating, the Brooklyn Nets. The Brooklyn Nets are 5-5 five and five on the season, so appropriate that they basically have an even net rating. 12th in offense, 19th in defense. That disparity, something kind of notable. We thought they'd be a much better defensive team than offensive team, though Nick Claxton has missed a significant portion of the season now. BPI, 44-38, and 38, which would be 7th in the East, 76% chance of making the playoffs. And something that had concerned me about this Brooklyn team, um, and that was even before the, you know, like they've had more from Cam Thomas than I expected. Brooklyn has the lowest free throw attempt rate in the Eastern Conference, second lowest in the NBA behind or ahead of, I guess you would say, only Denver. And Denver has their, you know, their, their offense is just such a completely different theory of it overall. And it makes sense because there just aren't that many players on this Brooklyn team that you would think would like really force fouls. Yeah, Cam Thomas is getting to the line a little bit more than he was. He's out, of course, now for at least two weeks with that ankle sprain. It is kind of weird that they are always worse over the course of his career, despite the way he scored when Cam Thomas is on the floor. They are way better defensively. Or I'm sorry, they are way better offensively when he's on the floor this year. Seven points per 100. He's just been incrementally making steps forward, uh, including only turning it over despite over a 30% usage on 5.1% of his possessions. I mean, that's that's unsustainably low. I mean, really the lowest that I recall anyone ever getting to is maybe in like the 8% range or so, especially for a guy who actually is handling the ball. Like Anthony Davis used to have really low turnover rates, but he was operating a lot still as a play finisher, although he was able to get his usage way up in his heyday. But unfortunately, we won't be seeing Cam Thomas for a little bit. As I watched some film of him, I was just impressed by his ability to operate in pick and roll. He still is not a great distributor. That's the biggest thing that he's going to need to work on. You know, he doesn't get on top of the rim in a way that's opening up a ton of passing angles, but he's at least getting to the basket a little bit more and uh, has improved his finishing somewhat. His usage increase and even playing time in some instances has occurred at the expense of Spencer Dinwiddie, who only has 17% usage. And Dinwiddie has really been in like the 21-22% range since he retore his ACL. Remember in the, the 2019 season, it was he and D'Angelo Russell. Dinwiddie had like 29% usage that, that year. Uh, but it is kind of odd that he has that low of usage because they don't have like a ton of other options off the dribble of course one of those is Mikhail Bridges he's not taking as many long twos he's also hitting everything from short range the big problem of why he hasn't been able to duplicate his efficiency with the Nets last year is he just can't make a three right now 27 percent from downtown he's taking 40 percent of his shots from there so he's been pretty efficient at, at the rim over 50 percent in the upper paint that'll probably come down a little bit he's not taking that many more threes off the dribble so i think he's gonna find a way to start shooting the three better i don't know if he's gonna be like you know a 40 percent guy the way he was at his absolute best in phoenix when he was just taking different types 
of shots, but it does seem at least that he's not really on track to like take another step forward and he's got work to do to even get back to where he was with the Nets last year, which of course was very good, but it doesn't seem like he's like, oh, this guy's going to blow up to again to be like a number one option type. Probably he's going to settle in more as a two or maybe a three as well, but maybe he can be more efficient in that role. Oh, one other thing, yeah. uh, to, sorry to move up. Well, this does relate to Mikael Bridges that I want to keep an eye on with Brooklyn and I can point to Nick Claxton as being a part of this story. Last year, the Nets were middle of the road in terms of forcing turnovers defensively. They are dead last in the NBA right now in defensive turnover rate, and they're well below the median. This isn't a circumstance where like everyone is close. They're forcing turnovers on 11.4% of opponent possessions. The median is about 15%. And so that just makes it harder to compete defensively. They're doing well in some of the other four factors. But if the other team gets a shot up, you know, this is the reverse of what we used to say with the Spurs. If the if the other team can get a shot up every time, they're going to make a portion of their shots, even if you do a good job contesting. Yeah, and you'd think with Ben Simmons, although he's out and is not the same defender that he once was, and Mikhail Bridges, who doesn't do as much defensively as he used to due to his, having more offensive responsibilities, that they could force more turnovers than they had. With Claxton out, it's been a weird defensive task for them. You mentioned their 19th in defensive rating. They have no rim protection whatsoever. Ben Simmons has been playing a lot at center. Opponents are shooting 19 of 24 at the rim against him. Dayron Sharp, their backup center. Opponents are shooting over 70% against him at the rim as well. And so we'll see whether Claxton can come back and change that. We'll see what their approach is going to be. They're going to try to keep Claxton closer to the rim. They aren't allowing that many shots at the rim, although opponents are making every single one when they do get there. But part of the way that they're preventing that from happening is they're really selling out to prevent penetration. And then as a result, they're giving up a a crap ton of threes to their uh, opponents. So let's see. Claxton is such an important player for them defensively, but they do seem to still be kind of less than the sum of their parts, but not having anyone who's been effective protecting the rim. I mean, that's kind of your anchor. And maybe if they can now funnel more stuff into Claxton and they still have, in theory, good individual defenders, they don't really have anyone that they're throwing out there who's a huge liability other than maybe Cam Thomas. So you're hopeful that they can get better. But I think the idea of these guys getting to be, you know, a top 10 type of defense, that's going to be asking a lot. And I think you're also asking a lot for them to stay 12th on offense. A lot of that's relied on Cam Thomas, who's now going to be out. And maybe Bridges can be better and counteract that. They are getting up a lot of threes, although some of these guys are not shooting particularly well, like a Royce O'Neal, for example. So another team that I haven't got a great feel for, they've survived to five and five. And I just want to see, you know, can Claxton be the guy that he was before the KD trade last year? Maybe that's what gets this team into like, you know, being a solid playoff type of team or at least play in team. But I could also kind of see them falling off a little bit. So we'll we'll give another few games with Claxton returning and and obviously check back in on, on what that looks like. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, 
<laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Another 5-5 five and five team in the Eastern Conference is the Toronto Raptors. They did so with a comeback win over the Washington Wizards on Monday night. They are have a slightly negative net rating, negative 0.4. 27th in offense, 6th in defense for the Raps. Uh, 37 projected wins, which would be 10th in the East. 18% chance of making the playoffs and a little bit of injury news. Both OG Ananobi and Gary Trent did not play in that game against the Wizards. Ananobi has a right finger laceration, which reportedly happened when he was doing chores around his house. And Gary yeah, Trent was he is- trying to was he trying to like remove an avocado pit with a knife? Because that apparently is the most common way that people cut their hand around the house. I don't know, but now I'm interested. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the other things, and uh, this came up, I can't remember who I was talking with recently, we were talking about the Raptors and how the ball has been pinging around a lot more for them this year. And even though the offense has been poor, remember, assist percentage is on the percentage of your baskets that is assisted. So even if you don't score as much, do that. The Spurs have the number one assist percentage in the league. Again, not necessarily one of the league's best offenses. Toronto's number two. 66.6% of their made field goals are assisted. And as you pulled, because maybe inspired by that, their passing per game is striking. Second in the NBA, 319 passes per game. Darko Ryakovich and I think Masai Ujiri was looking for this too. Maybe this is part of why Ryakovich got the job. This was too isolation heavy of a team. And you would have thought that you know, Fred Van Vliet was maybe their best passer a year ago. He's gone now. They added Dennis Schroeder, who's not known for his passing, but they are actually moving the ball much better than they had. I mean, now the numbers are not insanely good and they are 27th on offense this year after being 12th last year big reason for that is they were number one in avoiding turnovers last year they are 23rd this year that happens when you're trying to pass the ball more often they were third in offensive rebounding last year they are 15th this year a surprise again because they have Jakob Pertl all year which they didn't, and he's a really good offensive rebounder. And they're not getting the line as much as they did. They weren't great at that last year either. And then in terms of transition, another one of those things that was so interesting, they are still running quite a bit. And they are actually number one in terms of their efficiency in transition, 148 offensive rating in transition, and they are running the third most frequently of any team per cleaning the gas. And they are number one in the points plus 6.5 points per game added in transition over equivalent half court possessions uh, per cleaning the glass. And they are just running like crazy, particularly off of misses. They're just not doing it nearly as much off of turnovers as they did previously but uh can i can yeah. i throw one more queen the glass stat out there oh yeah in the as the raptors turn last year toronto and and you know they can there there are times though it's not as true this year where they can give up a ton of threes last year they had the third highest opponent three-point shooting percentage from long range 38 percent. right now they have the third lowest opponent shooting rate in that 32.6 or not rate of uh, success rate so so percentages um so that of course makes a huge difference in terms of how good your defense actually looks they were 29th in effective view, opponent effective field goal percentage last year they're currently fifth but there are other 
elements where they can be significantly better than they've been so far, including forcing turnovers. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see if they can maintain this number six defense, because that, of course, was a big part of what ailed them under Nick Nurse the last couple of years is that you felt like they could be better defensively. And it seems like some of the trade-offs that they've made defensively, more conservative style, staying in front of guys more, they're up to number six on defense. They were mid-pack last year, but they were number one in forcing turnovers the last four years of the Nurse era. And now they're 18th in forcing turnovers, but they're they're still able to run. But that now they're also turning over more on offense. And so so far they've been worse on offense and better on defense as you might have expected by not gambling and not getting out in transition as much and not hitting the offensive glass as much maybe to get back a little bit more it's kind of averaging out to about the same or on a 500-ish team as they were a year ago but as you noted let's see what happens if the three-point shooting normalizes and also the three-point shooting was perhaps a little unlucky a year ago scotty barnes has been the biggest story increasing his usage from 20 to 25 percent he was really going gangbusters but now he's had back-to-back four or 15 nights before today's game against the wizards which i did not watch so these stats are all before tonight's game so he's at at 56 percent true shooting so as you know that's a little bit below league average he's just showing much more confidence in the jump shot right now hitting 35 percent which would be a career high he's nearly doubled his three point attempts per 36 from three to 5.7 and his percentage of assisted threes hasn't really moved so it's not necessarily that he's like taking a bunch more off the dribble he is more willing to take them when the defense goes way under in pick and roll i want to talk about that a little bit more so he just generally is taking more and some of those are off the dribble but really it's more that he's been aggressive out of spot ups and then when he is on the ball teams have still been going under on him or kind of laying off him in isolation and he's been pulling the J without hesitation he's been going to that not quite a step back but we'll go for that big crossover dribble and then pull back into more of a jump back maybe even than a step back it, and he's getting good separation on these shots and he's been aggressive they've been going in reasonably well we'll see that that's just one where you're encouraged that he's being more aggressive that's never been a huge problem for him though quite frankly it's just and he's been getting the ball more now with Fred Van Vliet in Houston I've been very impressed though with his defense we're seeing him block a bunch of shots he's averaging two blocks a game right now and I watched all these blocks and I was the first couple just happened to be like really nice help plays at the rim we came over and got like a Kyrie Irving left-handed floater just caught it in the air basically and started the fast break the other way but it wasn't it hasn't really been like nuts and bolts rim protection rotating over he's actually blocked five three-pointers so far and then a bunch of these other ones have been on plays where he was kind of beaten and got back into the players one where drew holiday gets past him and drew thinks you know drew's not like the fastest guy he likes to kind of slow down and he just goes into this nonchalant layup thinking he's got it and scotty just like he just swallowed him up like there have been a few plays where it's like wow he is massive and he seems to be jumping a little bit better off of two feet on some of these shot blocks as well but this is i think one of the first stretches where i've really seen him be the impact defender that he was supposed to be at least as a help guy now his feet are still not that amazing moving laterally like he is giving up some blow buys to be sure but he also is kind of catching guys from behind on some of those uh this is also impressive though even even if the shot blocks are not necessarily all coming at the rim 
He has challenged 44 shots at the rim, which is a good number per the tracking data. Opponents are hitting 57%, but for a secondary rim protector, that's a, a pretty darn good number. You know, we mentioned that's the same as Chris Stapp's Porzingis. And so seeing some exciting stuff here from Scotty Barnes and the jump shot, you know, we'll see on that one. But I think the fact that in this is age 22 season, he's being this much more aggressive and at least having a good stretch like this is very encouraging. But also for him to start to become this truly impact defender showing some signs of that you have to feel very good about the progress that he clearly has shown so far and seems like he's back on an improvement track after the stagnation a year ago absolutely encouraging for barnes and and the raptors still have a lot of decisions to make but if barnes can be closer to the guy he looked like and you and i were we're admittedly skeptical after his rookie year than that it changes some of the decisions that Masai Ujiri and the front office will have to make and some of those decisions are are not in their hands what Ananobi what Pascal Siakam want to do with their pending unrestricted free agency but definitely good news for for them there the next team in terms of net rating in the east is the Cleveland Cavaliers you want to give their stats Cavs are four and five, negative 2.1 net rating, 17th in the league, 22nd on offense, 15th on defense, and they still, per BPI, projecting for 47 wins. That's the four seed, 90% chance of the playoffs. I had a note in here before they lost to the Kings today that I think the Cavs are going to go on a run. And part of my reason for that was that they were only shooting 33% for three, and they actually did shoot well in this game against the Kings, but they gave up a buck 32 to them and probably not going to win too many games that way. The Cavs are number one in offensive location e-field goal percentage. They also can't hit a floater or a long two, although they don't have great shooters from those spots necessarily. Darius Garland and Mitchell are, are more three-point shooters. So I think the Cavs still, despite the, the fact that they ran into a hot shooting Kings team tonight, can start to play a lot better and that i guess they don't get to play the warriors every night they've got two of their four wins against they haven't been particularly healthy jared allen is working back into things and they did add these shooters i believe in what they're doing it's been a disappointing start for them but i think both because they have a lot of talent and because some of the numbers i think are going to normalize a little bit for them i think they're going to look pretty good you did see them in person though on saturday night against golden state what were your impressions there i did see them and that was a game the Cavs won 118 110 and they largely outclassed the golden state warriors and my biggest takeaway from the contest and and on yesterday's podcast i talked a little bit about this from the wolves warriors game is that Stephen curry was the best player on the floor over Overall, he had 30, 30 points, and that was even with a 4 of 14 from 3, but he was opening up a lot of things for his teammates and everything else. I think the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th best players on the floor were all Cleveland Cavaliers. And that was really like the the difference in quality was really stark. And Don Mitchell, of course, had 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 some really good moments. He was confident as a driver, had some good passes, 21 points, five assists. But the player who was who is probably a, a more of an unsung hero, though he did actually tie for the most minutes played on the team was Karis LeVert. And Karis LeVert, in the second quarter, had a a really nice run where he 
kept the Cavs afloat, scoring and had had some mid rangers, had some some drives, and 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 then hit a three. I think kind of to close out that little mini run that he had. Eventually, Levert had twenty two points on eight of eighteen from the field, and we've talked about it a little bit in other contexts. But I am impressed with Levert that not only has he understood that he is not the lead offensive guy. And remember, there were times that we criticized him for being both an, a flawed and an overly aggressive offensive player on Brooklyn. But also, he's taken major strides defensively. And so Karis Levert probably wouldn't have an NBA rotation role or wouldn't be nearly as strong if he wasn't holding it, holding up. And I thought he did a really nice job overall. And that makes him a much more viable compliment to Garland and Mitchell. And they've also, the Cavs have needed that more with Ricky Rubio having an absence from the team. We hope that his that mental health and everything is going well for them. But really, this team is playing, if we're going to count Struess as like a, he's not a guard in that playmaker sense. They really only are playing three guys that can handle the ball. Yeah, and that's been a problem for them with Darius Garland out with this hamstring issue. And the big issue has been that when Garland and Mitchell have both been off the floor, they have a negative 20 net rating in 165 possessions. So that's like a a game and a half's worth. And when Donovan Mitchell has been on the floor, they've been totally fine, plus five. When Garland plays without Mitchell, they've been a negative 12.7. So the Garland-Mitchell minutes together have been good their starting lineup hasn't played that much but when it has they're plus 7.4 you hope that actually for kind of a top heavy team like this gets to be even better than that but i i still you know garland hasn't been playing particularly well jared allen is working back into things he's missed a bunch of the season i just i still believe in what these guys have been in the regular season when healthy and i think they have decent enough depth that works but it only works when they have all four of their stars healthy as well well, particularly because they don't have functional, like, low-end replacements for those guys. So, I mean, yeah. I noticed that a lot when Jared Allen was out. I thought Mobley did a pretty solid job, but then there was no one to either do, like, the things that Mobley had to give up to fill some of Allen's role. But then there also wasn't a replacement for Mobley, like, when he sat. Whereas when they had both of those guys, and, and Jared Allen only played 28 minutes in this contest, but I thought he made a huge difference out there changing the shots that the Warriors were taking. When they can get that four. 48 minutes of rim protection, including some overlap. That makes a world difference. And it's the same story with Garland and Mitchell, where I just praised Karis Levert, but you know, they don't have that other like kind of dynamic guard in that same sense. And so that puts pressure on on their players to be healthy, to be available. And in this one they were, and that made a huge difference. I don't want to dwell too much on Draymond Green's ejection. The only thing I really want to note there is that while there are there are many reasons, there are reasons to be opposed to the second technical he got, sort of paralleling. Draymond Green, this was a suspension, not an ejection in 2016, where if he hadn't done the thing before in in 2016, it was the accumulation of technical fouls. In this game, it was the initial technical where he was just yelling about, I believe, was a no call. Then the other part wouldn't actually matter. Like, yeah, it wasn't the greatest tech call, but you didn't have to do the first thing. And that's the only reason the second thing mattered as much as it did. Um, You brought up the idea of how Allen and Mobley, like having one of them on the floor is so important. And and J.B. Bickerstaff, that's something I think he's going to have to adjust to a little bit. 
the, Mobley and Allen both got their fourth personal foul before the end of the third quarter. So he pulled both of them and it got really rough really fast. They just don't have other players who could do that. Tristan Thompson is on this is on this team. He didn't really didn't make much of an impact. Damian Jones, former Warrior, didn't really play until the end of the game. And so both Mobley and Allen finished the game with four fouls. And that that stretch could have been more decisive than it that ended up being. And yeah, both those guys aren't necessarily the greatest minute to minute playing with fouls, but the idea that you kind of need to you, you kind of need to grin and bear it a little bit. And the I mean, I'll give Brad Stevens credit for this, of the idea that you don't the worst scenario is that you lose those minutes. And whether they come in the fourth quarter or the third quarter actually matters less than them not playing the minutes at all. Another through yeah. line. Yeah, good. Sorry. sorry. Uh, another through line of this game. And we this has come up in previous discussions of the Cavs having credible shooting from Struess and George Niang, even if Niang missed all four of his threes in this one, it makes the Cavs offense so much more dynamic because they can bring in these cuts and because defenders are just occupying different spaces and you still have the limitations when Mobley and Allen are playing together and, you know, Mobley's, you know, he's trying to work on his jump shot and I've, I've criticized this lack of a power game defensively or offensively. But when you have those cutters and shooters and everything, it, it works a lot better. And Levert, he gets respected out there whether a shot goes in or not. It can, can depend sometimes on the game. So, yeah, I, I thought that overall the Cavs, you know, you brought the idea of them going on run. I agree with you. I mean, I've been a big believer in them as a regular season team during this during this run for them overall and having they have some winnable games coming up and they also have some tough ones so we might get a clearer sense of exactly where the Cavs fit in the east hierarchy for example they have a back-to-back against philly and miami next week that could be a lot of fun so i am still i i don't i haven't seen anything that makes me think about the Cavs fundamentally differently though they have logged four four wins and five losses in their first nine games even if they did it at well below full strength yeah one other crazy stat for you darius garland has only played five games He's averaging 5.6 turnovers per game. Oof. Yeah, that is a, a really high number. He's never been like the absolute lowest turnover guy, but he was down at 2.9 per game last year, playing more minutes than he's played so far. He's also shooting only 25% from three and only taking four per game as well, which would be a career low. So he, he clearly is just not in rhythm yet. Uh, the one thing he is doing is getting to the foul line at a career best rate. Who's next here in our beautiful tour of the lower negative net ratings in the east the Miami heat six and four on the season but a negative 2.7 net rating that's 18th overall in the nba 26th in offense 11th in defense but bpi still thinks they'll finish sixth in the east 45 and 37 and have an 82 percent chance of making the playoffs the miami heat have the slowest offensive time to shot in the entire eastern conference they're 28th overall the only teams that are slower to get shots up are the denver nuggets and the houston rockets yeah remember when Cal lowry was going to get these guys running in transition that's not really happening that much yet uh, the overall heat offense hasn't been great and that's how you get to 26th on offense Tyler Hero is going to miss some time there's this talk that he was having this really efficient stretch and he was but he still was only 56% true shooting not really still not getting the foul line that much very very reliant on his outside shot making I thought that this was somewhat telling 
and you mentioned how they have that slowest offensive time to shot in the East. They're mid-pack in passes per game, but they average an Eastern Conference worst 2.6 secondary assists. That's basically the assister of the assister. So they're making a lot of passes. They're going slow on offense, but they're not really having effective ball movement where they're peeing the ball around the way you'd want to as a result of getting the defense in rotation. That's usually where those secondary assists will come from. The one guy keeping them afloat, however, is Bam Adebayo. Biggest thing that I noticed from him, I actually, there's two of them. He's now taking 37% of his shots from 10 to 16 feet. So that's basically wow. like above the dotted line. That's a huge number. I, I, I didn't have a great way to go through and check that, uh, that 10 to 16 feet on basketball reference to so like order by that. But that's got to be among the eyes, if not the highest percentage of shots being taken from 10 to 6, 16 uh, I, I can't recall ever seeing one higher and people know I peruse basketball reference a lot. Yeah, he's making 55% of those, which you'd think is an outlier, but he did make 50% from that range last year. Once he gets outside of 15 feet, he really doesn't hit much. But that has been a small component of a bigger trend for him and maybe a more important one and more sustainable one. His free throw rate is a career high right now, 0.49, and that's what's keeping his efficiency afloat he's up to 28 percent usage and 60 percent true shooting that's below the positional average for a center but certainly above the league average so those are the shots you want him taking particularly because he and particularly when those shots are from the foul line they don't really have anyone else who can do this so how's he getting to the line well so he's got actually he's hitting enough of these short range jump shots that he can now use the DeMar DeRozan Memorial pump fake to get to the foul line a little bit. He also seems like he's been emulating Jimmy Butler, who is another foul drawing maven in a couple of respects. I mean, one is that pump fake. Another one is just the kind of anytime you're in a weird situation where there's contact, you can just kind of throw a shot up or flop a little bit. He did the, I'm going for a loose ball. Someone ran into me and I'll just fall down and force the ref to call it move. The other thing he's doing a really good job of is just being so much more decisive as a driver. And that's what I've liked the most. I mean, I've thought of, I think I, when John and I did a segment on who we thought was the best athlete in the NBA a few years ago, I I think I might have even picked Bam. He was certainly up there in consideration for me. But you don't see, like, Bam wouldn't make, like, quick, hard moves fast decisions aggressive attacks like he kind of more likes to work it work to a spot maybe take that jumper maybe look to hand off to somebody this season whether it's on like quick fake dho qb keeper type attacks or just going downhill at guys crossing over making a move either with the euro step or even more so the same as jimmy butler attacking the shoulder of a guy who's not in legal guarding position to draw fouls I've really been impressed by the way that Adebayo has just been aggressive. He's used his strength. He's used his athleticism. It's been another incremental step forward for him. This is age 26 season. He's getting a lot of and ones too with these hard driving moves to his right. And he's just been adding a little bit more. I never would have thought he would get up to 28% usage. And Jimmy has kind of been pretty ho-hum to start the season. It hasn't been as efficient as he usually is. And then defensively, Bam is having the best 
rim protecting stretch that I can remember from him. He's allowing only 46% shooting at the rim on shots that he is in the area to contest. For context, last year that was 65%. And he's never been like an unbelievable rim protector. He does it other ways. He's switching more on the perimeter. So if he's adding that in addition to being one of the best guys moving his feet defensively, and we're, we're talking about, again, an all-star level player, just he's always, to me, the last three, four years, been one of the most underrated players in the NBA, and he's he's just gotten better again. It's extremely exciting to see it happen. And one thing I wanted to mention before we move on from the Heat, last year, Miami, 25th in offense, 7th in defense, and outscored their, or outperformed their point differential by the fourth largest margin in the NBA. This year, they're 26th in offense, 11th in defense, and outperforming their point differential by the most in the NBA. So some some similarities there. Unfortunately, Tower Hero, who missed time last year, is, is missing time again right now. Hope, hopefully, he'll play a higher proportion of the overall season, though. He won't in the sample so far. This is actually where the Bucks would be if we hadn't hit them earlier because they played the Orlando Magic. And so they got bumped up into the Orlando's part of this board. So next up, with the 21st best net rating in the NBA, is the Chicago Bulls. The Bulls are 4-7 and seven on the season. Negative 3.6 net rating is 21st. They're 19th on offense, 23rd on defense. BPI projects them to finish 36 and 46, which would be 11th in the East and an 11% chance of making the playoffs. And Nate, I went pretty far down this rabbit hole. The Chicago opponent location effective field goal percentage is gobsmacking. And this is before I, I couldn't the, believe this. This is before the B- Bucks game. I haven't seen whether how, how much this would have changed it. it the, the stats hadn't compiled before the Bucks game. Forty-two point four percent of Chicago opponent shots are threes. That's the highest by far. Thirty-seven point six percent of opponent shots are at the rim. So that means in the first ten games of the season, eighty percent of opponent shots against the Bulls were either at the rim or from three. Yeah, I'm guessing that playing the the Bucks who got up forty seven three-point attempts against them (laughs) didn't change that very much uh yeah that is really bad i mean 56 percent opponent location e field goal percentage that's half a percentage point clear of the next worst team and that's that's a metric that we're not talking now about shot making we're talking about just where the shots are coming from you don't really see that big of a gap in those numbers so 56 percent is the highest i can really ever recall seeing and that that's pretty remarkable it just doesn't seem like things are going that well for this team uh you know despite the i mean they're four and seven i guess that's not where they hope to be anyway after they lost to the bucks today uh they have the lowest assist percentage in the nba only 54.5 percent of field goals they make are assisted that's tied with portland they are also last in potential assists per game as well so not only are they not making shots off of passes but they're not setting up their teammates very well to even take shots that they're going to miss another thing that they were really good at was defensive rebounding the last few years they are first eighth and third the last three years they are now 28th the starters have been really bad that's uh, something that's been talked about a lot that the combination of Levine Vooch and DeRozan has never really had a particularly good net rating it doesn't this year they're way in the negative and then when Alex Caruso comes in they play better but they also really struggle to rebound when Caruso comes in he's basically playing as the four so I guess my question to you I I tried to compile a small list like is what is going well for the Chicago Bulls right now I'm struggling to find anything that actually matters that is going well for them. Alex Crusoe, 72% true shooting on 
12 usage. Um, he, he's doing well kind of in that small role offensively. They forced a ton of turnovers when Caruso has been on the floor. That's one. Chicago also, they're not turning the ball over, which has been a DeRozan staple. They're actually close to the Toronto double of forcing the most turnovers in the league and committing the fewest. Um, they're not, they're, I don't think they've been as exciting to watch do that as at times the Raptors were. And then the other one, and this is, this is damning with faint praise in, in a lot of different ways. Hopefully this convinces whether it's Arturus or or ownership, this is egregious enough that it can convince them to actually do the right thing. Like there, it the, for the arc of the franchise, having a disappointing first twenty to thirty games of the year is actually significantly better for them than being kind of middle of the road and all that type of stuff. It's sort of the reverse of a bad shooter making their first shot of the game and then just taking way too many. So maybe that's the brightest. That's the most silver lining. I and mean, Demar Derozan is not having a good start to the season. He's under 55% true shooting. So is Zach Levine. So is Nick Vucevic. I think those guys can be a little bit better. Levine's shooting 32% from three. DeRozan hasn't had the crazy mid-range touch. Levine is, hasn't been able to hit a mid-ranger either. And it's crazy to see DeMar DeRozan shooting 24% from 10 to 16 feet, Oof. a place where he takes 20% of his shots. Kobe White is struggling to shoot it, but some of their other support guys are shooting better. Like they're shooting 35% from three overall as a team. I don't think that's going to change well, too much. So Nate, I have a wild stat for you. You brought up how their, their top three guys haven't been efficient to their standards, and that's all true. The fourth, fifth, and sixth bulls in terms of minutes played are Kobe White, Patrick Williams, and Torrey Craig. They're each below 50% true shooting. Kobe White at 50, at 49 Patrick Williams at 40 flat. Torrey Craig He's shooting 30% from the field, Patrick Williams. So I, I think they could just shoot a little bit better. But uh, here's another stat that's not too great. DeMar DeRozan has zero dunks this season. Patrick Williams has two. I wonder if this team has the fewest dunks in the league. They don't have any player who is taking more than 5% of his shots as dunks other than Andre Drummond. Yeah, I, I just scrolled down quite a bit to find him. Oh, I, I actually can. Yeah. They are not the lowest. There is one team has one fewer, and that is the Brooklyn Nets. They have 26. Yeah, well, as soon as Nick Claxton comes back, that'll that'll change things for that. I'm done with these guys. This is the most boring team in the NBA. Let's move on. Let's, let's keep the excitement rolling. Next up, and the, the last team that you covered in depth, I, I still have two more. Um, the Detroit Pistons, the the Pistons are two and nine on the season. They are 24th in net rating, negative 5.9 per 100 possessions, 25th in offense, 21st in defense, and they're projected to finish last in the East, 27 wins. They have a 0% chance of making the playoffs per BPI. A couple of interesting standout stats from, from the Pistons in terms of those outliers I brought up earlier. Pistons have the third highest assist percentage in the NBA. 66.2% of their field goals made are assisted. They also have the second highest turnover rate in the NBA and the second lowest opponent three-point attempt rate in the NBA. Yeah, the high assist percentage, that was a staple of Monty Williams' offenses in Phoenix. So it, it seems like they're trying to at least move the ball, but offensively it hasn't looked good. And 
it's just not happening yet for Kate Cunningham. And there are some sides of improvement, a little bit in free throw rate. He's taking about the same number of threes. They're not going in, shooting about 30% from downtown again. He's looked a little bit more comfortable getting to his mid-ranger, but he's taking more of his shots there than ever. And he really needs to be... I've always felt like Luca was, in theory, the analog for him as a you know, big guard who can isn't going to blow by you, but can use his size to get to spots. But Luca is an incredible floater shooter and obviously incredible shooter at the rim. Kate is not a great floater shooter. That's probably where he needs to get to be like a great score. And like the overall numbers uh, for Cade just aren't there. Like what, what are some of his uh, top line stats for a guy who is supposed to be this, this is supposed to be his breakout year. He had this great time with team USA, all that stuff. 50% true shooting, which is tied with his rookie year on 31.4 usage. That would be a career high 30% on threes taking 6.4 per 36. That's again, largely in line with his rookie year. And then 46% on twos taking 14 of them per 36, which is more than his rookie year, though he has made up for that a little bit by getting to the free throw line more, as you mentioned. But yeah, those numbers are not where you want them to be, though there is some context that will linger with this Pistons team. And it's one of our big criticisms of the roster construction. Yeah, now some of that you can't necessarily help. Like you got to take the best prospect available, right? I think we both wanted them to take Asar Thompson there and he's had some flashes, although he also has been just spectacularly inefficient particularly shooting three-pointers he also can't finish at the rim this team is a i'm not going to call it nixian but they are 27th in the nba shooting only 61 percent at the rim and they can't make a floater either and asar is shooting 54 percent at the rim and he's been i think what is he shooting from three it was some just atrocious number oh it's it's 15 percent yeah one, one five yeah that's not so good and I mentioned Luca, and yes, Cade Cunningham is not Luca. I think that ship has sailed quite a bit ago. But man, would he love to have Luca Tadish's spacing because this is the first time I've ever done this. I actually put two screenshots of Cade Cunningham pick and rolls, which I watched some film of for this, in our preparation document so I could remember the plays perfectly. One of them is in the Philly game on Friday. They've got Nick Batum guarding Cade, and they put Joel Embiid on Asar Thompson rather than Marvin Bagley, who's in the game. And they put Tobias Harris on Marvin Bagley so that they could switch with Bagley. Asar Thompson sets the screen. Marvin Bagley is standing on the block as Cade is driving towards the left block. They've got Stanley Umude, I think that's how you pronounce his name, standing in the left corner, not being guarded by Tyrese Maxey. So you've got two guys standing right next to Marvin Bagley defensively on the left block. And then they got Jaden Ivey on in the right corner. So Asar Thompson decides he's going to pick and pop. He's the only pass that's available to Cade Cunningham as he's double teamed by Nick Batum and Joel Embiid at the free throw line. Throws it to Asar and Asar barely even hits the rim on the three-pointer. Then another play against Phoenix at home. Cade gets the switch of Yuta Watsonabe onto him. Tries to attack Jalen Duran for some reason is spaced out above the three-point line being guarded by Drew Eubanks who's just standing at the nail three feet away from Cade. Marcus Sasser who's probably been their best shooter is standing underneath the charge circle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at the picture now and cracking up. Killian Hayes is standing in the opposite corner and not being guarded. 
And then they finally got Joe Harris in the strong side corner, the one guy who could make a shot. It just, the spacing was just absolutely insane. And Cade like tries to pump fake to get Yuta in the air and just the possession goes nowhere. Yeah, I wanted you to see these screenshots. It just, I can't believe what Cade is trying to bash his head into on these plays. And yes, I'm, I can't sit here and tell you that I think Cade Cunningham is like going to be a superstar that he's shown so much this year. Like he just has not done that. But as you look at what Cade is dealing with, like, yeah, he can find Jalen Duran on the roll sometimes for some alley-oops. Cade's teammates are nine of 31 on spot-ups out of his passes out of pick and roll. And even that 31 is like the, the idea that Cade is only setting up three spot-up shots per game. Like that just shows you out of pick and roll. That shows you the number of shots that are being turned down. And of course, these guys aren't making them either. There have been some flashes for Cade getting to the basket and finishing. That first game against Miami, he had some impressive moments. And I think the game slowed down for him a little bit there. He's using his strength a little bit more. He still isn't finishing a good percentage at the rim again because the spacing is not great. So I, I do wish we had a little bit more of a real offense for Kate Cunningham to be working in because it just is not that at all. Something to file away. He's unfortunately played a very small sample because Jaden Ivey's still coming off the bench. Jaden Ivey making 38% of his threes, taking 6.4 per 36, 61% true shooting on 23 usage. I'm not sure that he is the person who should replace Killian Hayes in the starting lineup. I mean, in an ideal world, you could argue that it would be Bogdanovich when he be, when he is available. But yeah, they are really, really missing him, uh, oh, obviously, so although, it, although it seems like he's going to play the three and uh, Isaiah Stewart will still play the four. But at least like they, to have one more shooter out there would be very nice. But I mean, Daryl and, and Joe Harris is out for them, too, now with this shoulder, the AC, issue. the AC issue. So, yeah, even even the shooter they, they had limited shooting. It was something that concerned us about the Pistons, but the limited shooting they've had has, has largely not been available. So, I mean, and, and this ties in with something that over the years has come up, which is part of what a general manager needs to do is they need to make it not only just to make the game fun, but to be able to evaluate your players. And it is true that in the draft, you want to take the best prospect available. It's not like you're going to turn down a great on-ball guy because you have somebody there. This is the decision that Kobe Altman got so right drafting Garland after Colin Sexton. But just to know what you have and to know how you're going to spend your money in the offseason, because the Pistons usually are going to have cap space, like... It's, it's going to be hard to evaluate basically every single guy on this team because of how horrendous their spacing is. A couple of bright spots. Isaiah Stewart actually is shooting 44% from three. Now, another guy that you would hope could be getting up more threes than he is, only 4.3 for 36 minutes. You'd think like, he's and he's mostly kind of spacing out but he'll get around the basket sometimes so he hasn't played that much at the five although they did that on occasion marcus sasser you probably should say that he should be starting the way he shot the ball yes at 43 percent taking three point or i'm sorry taking 6.9 for 36 and he's taken some pretty deep ones too and he's tough guy older rookie at at 23 but can defend and and will at least bomb it from the outside like that's maybe a guy that you might want to have out there uh, it seems like Jay Nivey is just kind of getting the tough love even though he's been efficient uh, by his standards see so, yeah, I want to see how it looks once Bogdanovich comes back 
back and Alec Burks has had this forearm tightness like they'll they'll look better they've also been unlucky you know they're to be two and nine already they've been mostly competitive in these games they've blown a couple late so I, I think these guys are going to start to look a little bit better than they have so far but I mean they're already done it's, <laughs> they're two and nine like they're not going to get back into the like the playing mix or anything like that Wiz Hornets <laughs> Yeah, so uh, well, you want to give the Hornets stats because technically they're 27th in net rating and the Wizards are 28th. Yeah, they are 3-6, and six, negative 8.4 net rating, as you mentioned, 27th in the league. They are actually 10th on offense and 30th, 3-0th on defense, giving up a 122.6 defensive rating. They project for 30 wins and the 13 seed hmm, bpi pretty rosy one percent chance of the playoffs Ooh, and and one other one of those like kind of stabilizing stats the charlotte hornets they're only taking 27.9 percent of their shots from three that is the lowest in the league by a ton the so they're at below 28 percent orlando is at 30 median is at 36 so they're well below that and they played an NBA Cup game against the Washington Wizards, who are giving up the fastest. We talked about the the offensive pace. The Wizards give up the fastest opponent time to shot in the NBA, 10.6, which is more than a second less than the median. So they're giving up shots real fast. And they give up a lot of really fast shots to Mark Williams. Mark Williams had a just bonkers stat line in this game. 21 points. 24 rebounds, 15 of them offensive, 10 of 21 from the field. And remember, he's not taking a lot of jump shots in 30 minutes. Yeah, were all those, I mean, for him to miss 11 shots or a bunch of those just like on the putbacks on his 15 offensive rebounds? Many of them were, yes, but they weren't all necessarily like missed shots in the like, like I always think of Valanch, like the, the Valanchunas ones of like you miss the shot and then you get it back. Gafford blocked a few of them, but then he recovered the block and then put it back up. One play where he got blocked three times, the third block didn't count because it was a shot clock violation. Um, But on the season, um. Mark Williams is converting 77% of his shots in the restricted area. This is using the uh, splits that Cleaning the Glass uses and 50% from short mid-range, which is 4 to 14 feet. He is a perfect 28 of 28 on dunks, but then 9 of 30 on layups, which is still above average, but 3 of 11 on tips. And so how those sometimes get drawn can be a little bit murky. And getting back to the contest itself. Well, here, can, can I give you another Mark Williams stat? Of course. He missed more than half of the shots that he has missed on the season in this game. That's incredible. He missed 11 of the 20 shots that he has missed all season in this game. He's 53 out of 73 from the field. And while Williams, that the box score line was a curiosity, also worth noting, plus 19 in this game that was, you know, was fairly competitive down towards the end. And there were some good moments from Brandon Miller. He had a play where he faked right and then drove left for a clean uh, pull-up mid-ranger and had a, a, a nice hustle play where Miller missed a catch-and-shoot three and then just broke in for his own rebound and got that and then uh, made an interior pass to, for the assist. And then he had another one where he dribbled around and using, you know, using that size, the dribble, shoot, and pass that we talked about when he was a prospect, found Gordon Hayward underneath for an and one. So like, there, there was definitely some plays to be positive about for Mr. Miller. And 
there was also uh, there was a nice sequence for Nick Richards, who was their backup center, who had a, a, a shot block and then ran the four really hard and got rewarded with a I think it was a layup, not a dunk, but it was it was close between the two. And another curiosity from the Hornets in this contest, JT Thor has played 148 minutes, but he attempted his first free throws of the entire season, something I would not have caught except that the Hornets broadcast mentioned it. And um he also Thor missed both of those free throws, so he still has not made one on the season, but at least now he has taken some. And another great Miller play, I apologize, it was at a different part of my notes. He blocked a Jordan Poole pull-up three, which is not something you see very often, but Miller does have length and he can surprise guys a little bit. And the big part, so the Hornets didn't take the lead until the third quarter, and then eventually they kind of stabilized it in the fourth and pulled away, was LaMelo Ball catch-and-shoot threes particularly. He did have, a, I think he had at least one pull-up three. But LaMelo, that three-point shooting, we we noted this last year. They're like, oh, this is this is pretty interesting. Last year, he shot 38% in a small sample size, 38% on 11 per game. This year, he's only at nine per game, but he's making 36. So like he's, it, it's, I think he's in the range and he had some big ones in this one where it's like, where you don't think that it's anomalous. Like he is just a good three point shooter. And it's also encouraging for LaMelo that albeit nine game sample, 49% on twos would be tied for a career high for him. You'd love to see that in the fifties, but if with the assists and what he drives in transition, if he can get to like, he's a little bit below league average now in true shooting, this three pointer should get him close enough to that. Then that makes a big difference for the Hornets. And I mean, they they're 10th in offense right now as well. I'm trying to think if I have any other Hornets. So, oh yeah. One other thing I really liked from the Hornets in this game, two other things. One, they were really working hard to find Mark Williams on the interior. They, you know, like Williams was in position and some of that is just getting the good habits, rewarding the player who's trying hard to get good position. And, and yeah, Daniel Gafford blocked him a bunch of times, but you still want to kind of build the the expectation in the offense there. I'm not saying like feed him a ton in the low post, but just if he has an advantage spot, give him the ball. And another player who used an advantage very well in this game was Gordon Hayward. And Gordon Hayward, the Wiz have a fair amount of small guys within the rotation, especially with um, DeLon right now, unfortunately, suffering this MCL issue. So he's going to be out for a while. And so whenever Gordon Hayward got somebody thinner or shorter on him, he was playing a little bit of bully ball. And I thought it worked well. And that helped get the Wiz- helped get the Wizards in difficulty and get the Hornets some of their best shots. Yeah, a big part of why the Hornets uh, have surprised offensively is the offensive rebound mark williams i mean we should just to give a little bit more on his stats 75 percent true shooting and 18 percent usage mm-hmm. that is a big big usage number for a guy 75 percent true shooting per we don't like to use that too much but he's 26 percent per or not 26 percent, but 26 per and free throw rate almost 50 percent 16 percent offensive rebounds the one thing he's not doing is blocking any shots he's got fewer than a block per game that's certainly a, a disappointment and they are the number 30 defense uh, in part because he hasn't been that good although they're a lot better with him on the floor than when he's off but that, that's still pretty impressive for a guy uh, in his second year uh, he's been quite excellent for them and then the offensive rebounding overall mark williams leading the pack nick richards hasn't been as dominant on the offensive glass so far this year although he certainly has been another very efficient finisher these centers are Nick Richards has 80% true shooting. So that's really, despite nobody else being above average, these centers are kind of the ones 
pushing them to be respectable offensively and they're giving them the ball enough that they're not just like total pure catch and finish guys who are have been that effective and then you've got guys like Lamelo quietly has a six percent offensive rebound rate and Brandon Miller was five percent and JT Thor is six percent they have a bunch of guys who are at least doing something on the offensive glass so that's how they get to number three and that's been a way that they've been oh. respectable Nate another another notable Hornets stat so far they are fifth I brought up how they're dead last in three-point attempt frequency they're still fifth in location effective field goal percentage because they're taking 39.4% of their shots at the rim. That is an extremely high number. The only team that's taking more right now is the Orlando Magic, who are over 40%. And they're taking a fair amount from floater range as well. So they're, they have a huge disparity. They're seventh in location effective field goal percentage and 17th in actual. So that's not great. But getting that many shots at the rim, and some of that can be explained by getting a high volume of offensive rebound. You want to know one of the most most surprising stats in this entire analysis the washington wizards do not have the worst defensive rating in the nba in fact it's the well not, not hornets we just said it but not only not only do the Hornets do the wizards not have the worst defensive rating in the nba they have a better this is a stat that i pulled for another part of this they have a better defensive rating when gallinari's at center than the rest of the time but they're both terrible they have a 119 point uh sorry a, a 117.6 when Gallo's out there and a 121 overall, um, which is pretty incredible. Um, actually, do you want to give the Wizards stats before we? Uh, before I we do. Run? Yes, they. Uh, well, well yeah, want I mean, to just just because it'll make the podcast be closer to being over. Uh, two and eight, negative eight point eight net rating, twenty eighth in the NBA. They are eighteenth on offense. That's pretty good, actually. Uh, now they are have been playing some very offensively focused lineups, like the Gallo at center, for example. Twenty eighth on defense. BBI is like kind of rosy on them. 30 wins. I, I would expect it to be lower uh, than that. Uh, and uh, once again, those astronomical 1% odds of the playoffs. I brought up the defense being better for number wise when Gallinari's been at center. Yeah. Um, but and- by the way, that they're... Offense has dropped to 20th after tonight's games. Oh, yeah. When they 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 had like I think they were up 20 against the Raptors. And then I that uh, then that was I I went I went out, left the house and I wait, wait, they lost, except that it's the Wizards. So it's almost never a surprise that they actually lost. Um, Gallinari, they're giving up about 118 op- offensive rating to opponents, but they're positive in net rating because they're scoring 119. They have a the p- plus 1.6 in 280 cleaning the glass possessions. The spacing that he provides was vexing the Hornets at times and their their young bigs kind of were having trouble figuring out where they were going to be. And Washington, you know, not every guy on their team is hitting every single shot, but they have enough shooting at the other spots where it's, you know, you are you are creating some some challenges. And I, I wondered because of how bad the Wizards defense has been overall. I'm like, well, I mean, Daniel Gafford in in this contest, I think he was credited with four blocks, but he had not only one that was negated by a shot clock violation, there was another one where I think they just didn't give it to him where they should have. Um, so I'm like, well, how how has it been? When, Gallin- when when Gafford's been on the floor. And opponents are taking 32% of their shots at the rim. That's middle of the road. They That flies up when when he's off the floor. And gen- and a lot of those are going into floaters. And so that is a way that you can project that a big man is being a deterrent, that they're taking fewer shots at the rim, more shots from floater range, though there can be some s- logging anomalies there. But generally speaking, if it's the same team, you don't think there's as much there. And opponents are making 
63% of their shots to the rim when Gafford's on the floor. Um, and that is significantly worse. So better, you know, better for Gafford when he's on the floor than when it's Gallo or somebody else at center. And he's blocking 9% of opponent twos when, when he's on the floor. That would be the highest block percentage of his career, but not actually by that much. He had a year uh, on when he was on the Bulls where I think it was like 8.5, but that's still a, a really high block rate. But I brought up the shooting before from the Wiz. And one of the guys that had a nice game coming off the bench for them in this loss to the Hornets was Corey Kispert. Kispert shot 42% on threes last year. He's at 36% this year, but he's taking 8.1 per 36, which is the highest attempt rate of his career. And Kispert's usage rate has gone from 14 last season to almost 19 this year. So larger part of the offense taking shots. And yeah, he's not making 42% of the threes, but he's hitting them. And it is a little bit awkward because you think about how many of the best players in the Wizards are better offensive players than they are defensive. But I mean, you can make a credible argument that Kispert could and should be out there more. I thought that, you know, he played well in this game. I thought he did reasonably well um, in, in the part of the Raptors game that I saw. Um, and so, I mean, I, I don't know how you reconcile this because you have right now they have Kispert and Koulibaly coming off the bench. And you could argue that both for their short and long term, like you might actually be better starting those guys. But what in the world would their lineup look like then? Koulibaly certainly is someone that will lock in on more. I imagine he's only going to start playing more. I mean, he may be the best defensive player on the team already. And maybe, maybe, uh, maybe that's still on right, but he's not going to be available for a while at the MCL. And Or maybe it's Gafford just because they don't have anyone else who does uh, the room protection that he does. But th- that'll be interesting. The, the Wiz are allowing 15 points for 100 fewer on defense when Koulibaly is on the floor. Something to keep an eye on, I suppose. <laughs> something uh-huh. else Something yeah, else to keep an eye bad, on. Of course. The Washington yeah. Wizards did not have a single clutch minute, and I believe it was their first seven games of the year. But then now they've had some more recently, not only in the Hornets game, but then uh, the Raptors game, which resolved within five points. Um, I can't remember. I don't think there were any in that game. They also lost to the, the Nets over the weekend. I don't think there were any clutch minutes in that, but I, I don't think I was watching it closely enough to be well, 100% Well, sure. so the Wiz... The Wiz gave up a 15-0 run in the fourth quarter to the Nets over the weekend. And then tonight against Toronto, they scored one point in the last seven minutes of the game to blow a 16-point lead and a 20-point lead overall to Toronto. And so they, they gave have, up... They gave uh, up having some struggles in the fourth. Well, yeah. And in the in the Hornets game, the Wizards gave up a 10-0 Hornets run in about 90 seconds in the fourth quarter. But then hilariously, the Wiz <laughs> then went up 10 again, like 90 sec in their own 90-second run. And then the Hornets came back and won the game. And that's that's the way, the way these things can go sometimes. And can we, can we just do a quick check-in on Jordan Poole? Sure. Second on the team in minutes, 28 usage, 14% turnovers, 52% true shooting, and he's taken 8.6 three-point attempts per 36, hitting 30% of them so far. So he has not really been able to build on the moments that he had last year where he was actually pretty good as a starter, pretty efficient as a starter. Obviously, he struggled in the playoffs and you know, had some great moments two years ago, but it doesn't appear that I mean, so it shouldn't be a big surprise, but as the number one slash number two guy on an offense uh, that he's quite ready to uh, lead this team, shall we say. Along those lines, I pulled up the synergy stats on pool. 1.4 points per possession on spot ups. That is really, really good. But exactly half of that, 0.7 as a pick and roll ball handler scoring. 
And if you add in passing, that goes all the way up to 0.8, which is still well below average. So that part of it, you know, isn't isn't going fantastic for him. And that will make it harder. You know, the one of the ideas with trading for Jordan Poole was maybe you can flip him in the future and they will need to bring in a an offensive force that is better than Jordan Poole. I think all of us knew that to begin with. But the idea that he's being asked to do things that he's not as good at and and, and that's going to sacrifice his individual efficiency, like that's worth it in the short term because there isn't really another way to do it. But it is going to be, you know, something that it, that will make the Wizards worse in the short term. All right, then we made it. All 15 teams in the East. Big week coming up starting tomorrow with uh, our third round of in-season tournament games. We'll talk to you all then. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 